Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Barn Blog. And today I'm here with Mark Rainey. Uh, Mark is a longtime friend of the show. Uh, one of the few people I know who actually read Capitals Volume One through Three and Theories of Surplus Value and read it closely. Um, we talked about this a few years ago, but you're one of the few people I know who actually did it. Um, most people I know who talk about capital get through about volume one and get through half of volume two and quit. So, um, it's no small task, but yeah, it is what, like 5,000 pages or something. (laughs) Um, so however, I'm here to, to talk to you about one of your other hobby obsessions, um, you and I got into cybernetic theory at the same time. I am more of a noted cybernetic friendly skeptic than you, although my reasons for that maybe we can get into later. Sure. Um, but we've also talked about LLMs a lot. And I was a big LLM skeptic in the beginning. Um, I've read a lot of the work of Dwayne Monroe and... I see his concerns. I've talked to uh, Nicholas Villarreal on this as well. So, uh, Dwayne seems to think LLMs are kind of a scam. Um, that is his, his object of expertise. But I've talked to a lot of other people who are not normally given towards tech optimism who have far more complicated views in the last two months. Um one is Nicola, uh, Nicolas Villarreal, who's talked to me a lot about what he sees as kind of like, yeah, there's there there are oversells in what LLMs can do, or at least the threat that they pose, and that itself is a form of marketing, but that they are actually really useful technologies that, in the right hands could be massively labor-saving and with the right development really could be a kind of intelligence that approaches something human. Um, Although he seems to think that under capitalist control that that's not how they're going to be used or what they're going to end up being. Um, You've played with them a lot and done a lot with them and uh, you've been very optimistic about what they can do. I have recently started playing with them in the context of education where I think they can be both helpful, but how they're going to be utilized in education is actually quite worrying, both from the standpoint of teachers and from the standpoint of students not doing shit. Um, 
And I can already tell you what I'm receiving is people who don't even know to take the, this is a large language model tag out of the thing that they copied. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) They can't even cheat. Well, Um, I'm like, no, I don't have to use the AI checker on this. I know what you're doing. Um, But I've come around though, on this idea that if we take its energy input limitations into account and we take that this is going to be as good as the kinds of things we put into it. And if we started, say, siloing different ones of these uh, large language models, simulations off from each other so that like they learn different ways, um, we actually probably could be doing something quite interesting with these that under non-capitalist conditions would actually be a major labor-saving um, bit of software. Now, I don't think that's what's going to actually end up happening, but I wanted to talk to you about that because, like I said, you are you are probably the most optimistic person on my spectrum of optimism about this. And so what have you been discovering as you've used these? So... Um, you know, it's funny to say I'm the most optimistic because I mean, I would say that my optimism has been maybe tempered a bit. Um, I'm still very optimistic about uh, the technology, I think that it's extremely powerful and useful. Um, if it's used correctly, um, I think one of the cool things about um, basically neural network technology in general is how well it um takes on isomorphisms of systems that it's able to learn from. And basically what that means is um, it's able to act like that system um, through the learning process. And, you know, it's applied to, to language in this way, and it's really convincing and in, in the things that it's able to, to output. I've used it to, to automate a lot of uh, my own personal work. Um, and I've used it to... I mean, to do to, to do a lot. But, you know, I've also run into limits. Um, I've been teaching myself some linear algebra and sometimes I'll I'll ask for some help from it. And, you know, I'll get some good some good outputs. But when it comes to, you know, actual computations, as everybody knows, it's not very good. So I can't rely on it for that. And I'll go to things like Wolfram Alpha instead um, that are what more you- specialized towards numbers. Um, so what do you think? I don't know. Actually, I shouldn't ask you why do you think, because this is actually an objective question. Why is it that if you train uh, an algorithmic systems model on a language that is qualitative, it loses the ability to do math? Like, like we, I mean, like, it's something, I was playing with a school AI program, I'm, I'm, I'm currently being trained on that, and they were warning us, like, oh yeah, this is great for all kinds of stuff, except math, don't do math. And I'm like, my first response is math is the one thing that I could in the past consistently trust uh, kinds of AI artificial, you know, uh, um, kinds of kinds of algorithmic models to be able to do. Why is it if we train it in this, it just loses the ability entirely to do the other thing? Like it's right. There's something fuzzy about language. It seems uh, I was listening to Sam Altman talk and mm-hmm. he made a point to where um, the more uh, human feedback that's been integrated into GPT models, the worst it's actually been at um, doing numbers and making predictions um, and, you know, things like that. So, I mean, it's like the, the better it gets at language, uh, 
the worse it gets at those things. And I don't know why that is. You say that there's an objective reason. Um, I'd like to. I'd like to know that. Well, it, it, one of the things is. Uh... that that i i think a lot about around this is that human human logic in general is fuzzy and and the assumptions that we've used in going back to um boolean operators way back in the day but that is that is that we actually use a far more um rigid set of logical sim, uh, signifiers than we actually do and then when we first designed a lot of these systems, we actually took these 18th and 19th century misunderstandings of human cognition and encoded them in. Um, then they were maintained because they actually, like, you can learn them and get consistent results from them. So, if you know, if we, search engines don't use Boolean uh, terms anymore, but when they did, they, they were pretty predictable on what you could get rid you know, figure out if you use the, if you learn the Boolean system right. Gotcha. Um, one of the things I think that we have to deal with, this is, this is, you know, where I think Wittgenstein helps a lot, but like, is that a lot of our associations are, a lot of our associations are um, very much limited by the the fact that we actually do see links that are not logically totally justified. Like if, like if you like look at a cluster of a of a series of words, right, mm -hmm. and you look at how they might get uh, semantically expanded or narrowed. Um, an example that I ran across in recently is meat in Old English. Uh, means all food. Mm -hmm. And then it gets narrowed uh, more and more to just mean flesh. Um, whereas, you, you know, if you, if you look at all the stuff around blood and uh, and heart that's in, in English, and it shows up all these places, both from French and Anglo-Saxon, right? We see all these expansions of these categories that are rhyming. Like, if you think about it, you can see how they, they are associated together and how we got semantic meaning from that. But, mm -hmm. and they're definitely like resemblances of things. Like there's types of things where you can say, okay, I can see that, but it's not, it doesn't occur naturally to me, particularly now thousand years, two thousand years down the line from the initial association. Um, math doesn't work like that. Math is pretty like, it removes all the all the qualia that we could get all mixed up in that shit in the first place. Um, I think that might be part of, part of the answer to, to why we have this problem. But it does seem interesting because humans can go back and forth between um, language style reasoning and mathematical reasoning. We can, we can teach ourselves to do that. Even if, even if like loosely speaking, 
they are separate skill sets and one is left brain and one is right brain. Although if anyone's actually studied the neurology of this, you know, pretty quickly that that breaks down really fast. Like, right. Like language syntax is in the same part of the brain, part of the brain. All these things have to be also pretty much put in quotation marks because, because these regions are not actually that delimited, but uh, like it's in the same part of the brain as, as as math when we do when we like when we do math and we look at uh mri we see the same kinds of regions light up in the head as we see when we're doing like sinus construction but other regions light up with sinus construction that don't light up when we're talking about math um i find that very interesting so i remember talking to someone i think it was uh joseph of or no dave of uh of of nightmare masterclass who's who was pretty optimistic and i said well you know one of the things i'm beginning to accept is we should accept these large language models as a kind of intelligence but since we don't understand how human intelligence actually really works uh like the precise ways in which like servo mechanic mechanisms interplay with cognitive structures and stuff like that. We don't really completely understand that, that we're actually creating an intelligence that can do things that we can do because it's learning from the way we input patterns and whatnot, but mm -hmm. it, it didn't develop it with the same kind of weird spandrelly history that we do. So it probably doesn't actually think the way we do. That doesn't right. mean that it's not super fucking intelligent. And I think that's like, that's the whole rub. And I think I've become convinced that it doesn't matter if it thinks like a human. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, I agree with that. It doesn't matter if it's necessarily a human intelligence. It's going to be an intelligence and it's going to be very intelligent and it's going to be able to do operations very quickly. So we're going to have to figure out how we're going to deal with it. But, you know, I don't think that it's going to be anything like us necessarily, mainly because it's not going to have a body. It's not going to have those sorts of experiences it's going to be like it's going to be trained on sort of like a an abstract human experience that's you know aggregated on the internet and so you know and and you know gpt5 or 6 you know who knows what we're going to be you know looking at but i do think that it's going to it's going to change um the world similarly to how the internet did as far as you know you know it's, how, how it interrupts uh, human lifestyles. And you're already seeing, I think it was Wendy's that, that might be, uh, you know, testing, replacing drive-through tellers with uh, GPT technology. And, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff is going to hurt the working class. A, a lot of jobs are in that kind of work. And, uh, you know, it's not just the, the white collar workers that are going to be feeling it. And, you know, when you look at it that way, and it's just a matter of time. Yeah. I think you're right about that. I think I, and one of the things I think it's just a matter of time that we have to look at is this being rolled out at a time period where we are having a labor shortage. Um, we could not build up the human capital for for, for mass armies of coders um there was a there was a liquidity crunch in tech because of the increase in cross and debt and because so much tech is not actually that profitable um like it's rents 
it's rent sources versus it's commodity inputs versus it's R&D costs are like way out of balance. And so it's only have ever been able to leverage that by like basically hoping that interest outpaced debt costs to like increase the the uh, um, increase to increase nominal wealth. But like like when people ask me, for example, well, what happened to all that wealth that like Meta and Elon Musk and stuff lost? And I'm like, it wasn't valorizable. It wasn't real. Right. Like. Um, they could okay. not have ever spent it into reality anyway. So mm-hmm. it's not like it. It's not like it went to someone else. It's just gone. Like, um. So how do they cope with that? Well, all these technologies that we think have been simmering for a while. Um. I think uh, have very clearly been been kind of pushed to the forefront, you know, in light of that. I mean, I don't think it's any accident. I've said this now on three shows, but I don't think it's any accident that this happened when it happened. And I don't think it was a conspiracy either. I think like we ha- they were sitting on all this tech. They, you know, chat. We've, we've had the slow development of the like chat GPT one and chat GPT two. And then all of a sudden, we need to really push something out that can help us off-site coding mm-hmm. and do all these other things. Because honestly, also, one of the questions that I've had that this sort of quasi-solves is how do you re-industrialize when you start to decouple or our friend couple or whatever internationally? You start moving, you start breaking down these long-established multinational supply chains. And, you know, the U.S. does a lot of production, but there's a lot of finishing production. And now you need it to do a lot of other stuff. You have a demographic crisis. It is politically unviable for whatever reason to actually deal with mass immigration. So what do you do? Well, maybe the idea could be is like, let's push this stuff out. It'll help us offsite a lot of work. Also, it'll create a lot of people back opened up for blue collar style or are, are, are even skilled um, industrial work for this kind of industrial development that we need to do. But we're not going to have the capacity to do for, you know, who knows how many years. Like, I mean, even even with this, it's going to take what probably a decade to start getting these these physical systems up. You can't automate mm-hmm. them in the same in this kind of way. Like, so, I mean. You know, I, I think I think there's that, and you're right. There's this is pushing back on uh, on rage growth. I think um, I I think also you've seen the Fed back off on, on uh, interest rate r- rising, right? And I I, I, mean, I know people are gonna be like, oh, Varn, you sound crazy, but I think it's related. Like, because I'm like, oh, they were only doing that because I thought it could help on the one percent of inflation they could control. That 1% being wage growth inflation, which is a very small percentage of like the 5 to 8% inflation that we were dealing with. But like, it's something they can do something about. They can't do anything about international supply chains. They can't do anything about geopolitics. You know, they can't do that much about our own production stuff right now. It's hard to do anything about fucking birth rates. I mean, and like I said, for whatever reason, um, 
the political establishment, not just the Republicans, has become hostile to relaxing immigration, which was the last way they fixed these sorts of problems. Um, which, you know, I guess this gets us into like our interest in cybernetics. Like, uh, you're interested in cybernetics, and I'm interested in cybernetics. I told you my critique of cybernetics is that uh, Norbert Wiener, to some degree, um, um, Ashbery over relied on the server mechanic mechanism and behavioralist assumptions about human beings, mm -hmm. um, which were very popular both in the Soviet and the Western world in the in the forties and fifties. I can't. I don't blame them for that. I just think, you know, and the behavioralist cognitivist wars, the cognitivist one. I think we've probably gone too far in the cognitivist direction. And by the way, for people who don't know what we mean by cognitivist, cognitivists believe basically that there's a static human being that like there's cognitive structures in our mind and they don't change. Chomsky is a cognitivist, right? Um, if you're a pure behavioralist, you, you either believe in the weak version, which is like, we don't know, we can't know what human nature is. We can only know human outcomes. Um, because of social moderation, et cetera. So we're going to have to just deal with what we can deal with. Are the strong version, there is no human nature at all. Everything is, is inputs and outputs, which I think the first position is pretty defensible. The second position's not. Um, but we've kind of gone way over in the other direction on cognitivism. Um, and I have been sort of frustrated because I, I've been hoping there's been like in this stuff, particularly maybe with this LLM model stuff, we could start to answer some of these questions because right now we can't really answer what well, we can, we can, for, for example, we can say behavioralist assumptions on the strong variety of are wrong. But what we cannot say is how much, because we know that like say Pavlovian inputs work on people. So what we can't say is how much, behavioralist assumptions actually can be utilized and what, what, what cognitive structures can we change, you know, and what can't we, how plastic is human intelligence and, and how multifaceted is human intelligence. And it's really hard to measure. Like, um, like we all know, like people know the insufficiency of the IQ test and they, you know, that thank you, Stephen Jay Gould, but like almost any language based test is going to have some insufficiencies for testing um, intelligence because there's all kinds of linguistic assumptions that they're going to have that other kinds of manifestations of intelligence and abstract reasoning may not show up on. Right. And, and so, you know, this is the, the classic thing that's brought up as like, if you take abstract intelligence tests and look at uh, um, like, what is it? Like hunter gatherers, they have an IQ of like 60, but they have skill sets that, and things that I can't imagine. Like, like, literally they can they can they can reason in ways and relationships to like inputs and in, in nature and whatnot that like we can't really do anymore 
Mm-hmm. And so calling them less intelligence than us because they're not as good at math in the way that we articulate math even seems to be racist AF, but are even presentist AF, like, like, because we're also like discounting our own ancestors. Um, conversely, there's a lot of people who think something like IQ doesn't measure anything. And that's not true. It does. It, you know, within the parameters and limitations that I just talked about. Um, so yeah, when it comes to cybernetics, um, it, there's a lot of brilliant rules that really help you out. Mm-hmm. Uh, recursion, um, requisite variety. Um, <clears throat> But one of the things that we have to ask ourselves, like, in what ways is recursion in humans or recursion in mammals, like, different from recursion in a machine from the servo mechanic effect? And, and I don't think we actually, like, people go, oh, we know. I don't think we actually know in either direction. There's a whole lot of hard claims being made. Oh, the brain is just a, is just a machine. Well, Yes and no. I don't know what you mean. I mean. Machines do a lot of different things, man. Like, yeah. Um, and then there, you know. So, so I, I get the optimism. I've talked to you about it. I sometimes feel that, like, when when we talk to people now who are interested in cybernetics, they always go back to like the big old guys, like Stanford Beer, uh, Norbert Wiener. If if they're smart, they'll read Ashby. Um, I think Ashby's actually. I've increasingly decided Ashby's actually the more interesting one. Uh, yeah. uh, Wiener is great though. He, he is really interesting, but uh, Ashby's intro to cybernetics um, made cybernetics a little bit more real, but I mean, I always do fall back on Stafford beer. His, his viable system model um, gives a, a good framework. Um, a lot of, you know, just rules of thumbs, um, a lot of, you know, just different ways to look at systems and, and consider why they may not be functioning as well as they should be. Um, and, you know, recursion and variety is at the heart of how those analyses take place. Um, but there's also a way that you can misuse the viable system model. Um, and that is to not see it in relation to variety flows and uh, recursion. Um, a lot of people will look at the viable system model and want to see it as like a, as a corporate structure, like a way to, to assign blame to different mm-hmm. uh, elements of a system. Um, but that's not, that's not how it's meant. Yeah. So here's one I, I find here's what I was listening to. Um, What's that podcast? Auxiliary Materials. Uh, I can't. It's a podcast out of the UK. Um, okay. And uh, and they were talking about their big Stanford beer heads. You can tell they're in contact with the uh, General Intellect Unit. You know, that podcast and um, but uh, they found a guy Roger Avalos who'd like study worker systems and and uh, he was talking about beer and he's like well 
the variable systems model is fine, but if you try to design everything off of it, you're going to come into problems. Mm-hmm. Um, one, he says, like, you don't really need all systems to be viable. <laughs> like, some systems need to just survive immediately. Um, right. And two, uh, sometimes it's so abstract, and, it, and it's deliberately abstract for usefulness sake, right? Mm-hmm. That it doesn't actually give you clear guidance for the reasons that you're hinting at. Like, you can you you can treat it as a corporate structure. You can treat it as a corporate check and not deal with the fact that that like beer beer system uh is a good way to check if all the systems are working in a system that's supposed to survive i i absolutely agree there in fact i was going to do a video on that like i i can't think of a better way to conceive of it to check if things are flowing but you can have a very despotic system that meets the viability um mechanic that does it like all parts of it are operating fairly correctly but it's still a very top-down model i think Um, you can except there's one aspect of uh of the viable system model that i think really blows the ability for uh an authoritarian regime to be successful in the long run and um so stafford beer talks about I don't want to get into the system numbers, uh, but the components, the components of the, of the system, the, the primary workers, um, mm. you know, in a body, it may be the cells in a society. It may be the people and in a workplace, it's the workers. Um, so one, one thing that's required for a system to be viable is for those component systems to be what beer said is maximally free and mentally constrained um, in their day-to-day activity. Um, and that's a requirement because they have an awareness of their environment and their needs, the needs of their jobs and the system around them, um, that, you know, um, a higher system, say the manager or the boss or the dictator can't see. Um, and the dictator knows that, and the, the CEO knows that, that wants to control everything. Um, so what has to happen is there has to be extreme constraint from above. Um, but that makes for a brittle system because uh, the, the systems below, the systems one, has to make, they have to make decisions in real time in order to be uh, viable, you know, you have to to react to a constantly changing environment, and if you're so constrained that you can't react, then you're not going to survive. And I think that a lot of that is um, is is key to sort of understanding um, why uh, is uh, why capitalism isn't working very well. The working class is so constrained uh, that the viability is just not a question anymore. Uh, we don't have the freedom to react in ways that keep our social systems at this recursive level functioning. And, you know, uh, like stacking dolls, you know, if, if one recursive level fails and they all fail above it as well. Um, basically what I'm trying to say is variety. Um, the, the flow of variety has to be structured in such a way that you have you have autonomy and and the lower systems um because it's impossible to make those decisions from above and 
I'm having a hard time. No, that makes sense. Um, for those of you who don't know the systems model, these are feedback loops. And yeah. one of the interesting things I think about capital uh, and Roger Avalos at uh, that podcast mentioned this is like, you will see capital occasionally innovate ways that are more humane for workers that are actually even more efficient. Bought back for reasons that are not obvious unless you reframe it back into the terms of pure class power, not even of like pure efficiency with, with, with class power, because uh, one of the things Roger Avalos pointed out is like, Oh yeah, in Japan and Norway and stuff, they actually did come up with systems to incorporate workers in ways that made both profit more efficient and, um, and uh, make workers more happy by incorporating more worker inputs into the system, but they don't get maintained even when they're profitable, right? Um, and part of that makes me, you know, part of that is why I'm like, it's why I'm a class war Marxist, honestly. It's why, why when we talk about stuff, like I can talk about the problems of cl- of class analysis all day long and limitations to it, and how like when people try to reduce everything to it, it's not always explanatory. I'm, I'm uh-huh. definitely with you, but that tendency of like even subverting like the quote rational law of value so that class power can be maintained actually does indicate something to me. Even that's even more. It's probably even more aggressive than what Marx thought. I mean, Marx, it's hard to say what Marx thought on this. If you read, like, if you read uh, Capital's volume one through three, you definitely get the idea that Marx is trying to prove that this would be the case, even if the capitalists weren't like this, right? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even if you have a good boss, this is going to go this way, basically. But the the likelihood you're going to have a good boss is still really low. Um, and that's because of like these power dynamics and what I think. And I think something like a uh, viable systems model, when you mix it with something like uh, Michel Robert's iron law of oligarchy, which I don't think is an iron law. Right. I-, I talk about like one of the reasons why I like cybernetic theory, even if I'm critical parts of it, is it gives you a way to start checking on how to keep oligarchy from developing. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I think, and I also don't want to get into the system numbers, but this middle system is a place that is rife for skills hoarding, for deliberate mis missharing. Um, I mean, there is a sense like the central management of any organization, even as much as the 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 head of the organization has has incentives to like fuck with things and 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 hoard mm-hmm. um so the control room is what beer would call that the, the right. three and four mix yeah I, I think so um you know but but tying back into the llms i think that a lot of that can be be solved through this diffusion of knowledge that that is offering you know imagine uh an llm you know stronger than gpt4 that's that's able to guide um managers of some future socialist uh society that may rotate um and but it's still trained into the general ethos of our society um 
you know, I think that stuff like that can be powerful in, in curtailing the, the skills capture. Uh, because that all the knowledge wouldn't have to be contained in our heads. You know, we could we could just ask questions. Um, yeah. So I want to I want to play this with you for the internet because this is a great point, Mark. Sure. Um, the internet has become a nightmare land, right? Um, it's always been commodified to some degree. I, I don't have this like naivete about the decommoditized internet, but one thing I push. Like it's always been equally commoditized. That's not true. Early internet development, because of its relationship to DARPA, because the World Wide Web was not patented deliberately, because of international like communication enabling and et cetera, was actually a very hard space to commodify for a long time. And I think people like to the extent that it is today. Yes, it was still commodified in the sense that we had to buy computers and maintain all this equipment and do all this stuff that's often hidden to to access it, to deal with it, etc. Um, but one of the reasons I think the internet has become shit is that um, it because of its commodification tendencies and particularly and because it's some um, it's, it's commodification in particular so dependent on kinds of rents and cartelling and and coordinating off um what was a way to increase communication increase knowledge share and if you want to you can still do it has actually become a way to uh, it's one of the few points where nathan robinson made a valid point to me um to like, we can distribute now bad information, but bad information is decommodified uh, or it has less commodity. Conspiracy websites don't usually make you pay for them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sensational news where you get the headline, but don't actually get the details. Well, that'll you, you'll get the headline from the New York times, but you're going to have to pay for the details. Mm-hmm. And so, this encourages an environment that could have been massively useful for, for, for ending skill sharing. If anyone's ever played with, with like YouTube, Holy shit, man. Like I have learned how to fix so much stuff in my house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the same time, um, there's all kinds of knowledge that people want to squash or, or put behind walls or keep within certain silos. And, this has made the internet, I think, like, it's it's turned it plus, like, social signaling being a substitute for other kinds of communities has turned the internet into, like, a signifying hellscape where, like, it's really easy to signal and it's really easy to do, like, critique. But it's actually really hard to know how to get information because there's either too much of it available to you. Um, and the and the search filters are gotten shittier. Uh, like Google, for example, increasingly just gives you paid affiliate stuff despite all of its indexing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have the Facebook algorithm uh, feeding me legit conspiracy stuff uh, all the time. Um, do actually, and and Twitter's worse. Like I, I get a lot of like. Uh, some of it's some of it's Musk. Some of it's the fact that I think I live in Utah and it has a very like broad algorithm. It's like, oh, Utah must be Republican, you know, LDS, whatever. Mm-hmm. And 
because people like I don't see any of that on on Twitter, and I'm like, look, I get white wing Twitter stuff all the time, and I do not follow white wingers on Twitter. Like I don't hate follow people, so it's not it's not me giving it that input. Um, so you know, I think I think when you look at all that, you see this kind of like increasing. We we see what capitalism over the course of 40 years has done to um, a system that like I remember how much stuff you could find uh, even even seven years ago I have trouble finding stuff now um, like I'll give you an example I've had people who wanted to argue me about Alexander Dugan and, and like, I know certain things about him and I, I, from, from, because I've been involved in this stuff for so long and I, you know, and I want to find an article where he said something that I know he said, and it's almost impossible to find. I put it in, I put in anything that I think is going to be a search stuff to lead it to me on Google that worked in 2017 I'm going to get a ton of like liberal propaganda argues, conspiracy theories. I might get like patriotic socialist stuff. The actual material I'm going to find, if it's on the internet still at all, um, is usually like I got to look for like a hundred pages to get it now. Mm-hmm. And that's with me knowing what it's about and knowing how to like vaguely knowing what I'm looking for. And I still can't find it now. Um, and then I'll get all these affiliate links and and this, that, and the other. Um, some of that's worse now that I'm back in the U.S. Like, I, it wasn't quite this bad when I was outside of the States. But some of that, I think, is also just the algorithm getting shittier because I've heard other people just tell me that that's, that's the case. Um, yeah. And, I mean, sometimes it might be, not be in Google's best interest to send you to the, to the, best, in, uh, to the best information, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, now, programs go right. Well, now, for example, I might put I might put up find my birth certificate, right? Just something random. I had to do this ten years ago, mm-hmm. and it's going to give me ten to fifteen paid affiliate links before I get to a real search item. Mm-hmm. And all the paid affiliate links are like scams. Like it's like so. I'm going to pay someone to go look at this that I could totally do myself, or. I'm going to pay someone who's promising something that I actually know they can't deliver on because I know enough about the law. And I'm like, you can't actually even do that for me. Like, what are you even doing? And you'll just get tons of that. Um, When I first used Amazon back in the day, it would give me great book suggestions. That's not true anymore. Like, like it's trying to force me into like very broad based categories. Like it's actually trying, instead of giving me what I want, it's trying to force me into what it wants to sell. Right. Um, so let's, let's go over to these large language models. Um, how much do you see heading that way with these large language models? Like how, how, how do you see like, like I'm already seeing being feeling like it might go that way since I started using LLM tech. Um, I think that a lot of it will go that way. Uh, you know, just in general, the average person is going to feel more comfortable speaking conversationally and getting com- uh, information conversationally. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, that's one of the biggest complaints I get whenever I'm talking about something I'm interested in is, you know, don't use the, the, the technical words, explain it simply. And I have trouble with that, but uh, ChatGPT doesn't. You know, I'll, I'll take a quote that I'll find to be very inspiring and I'll, uh, I'll try to talk to my mom about it, for example. And uh, she has a hard time. Uh, understanding it, she has a high school education, but you know, if I'll put it into to GPT and say, explain this to um, uh, an average person, you know, it'll give me a very good. Uh, I don't want to say translation, maybe transduction of what that quote's trying to say, and in a way that uh, my mom can understand it and. That's not a skill that I have, but I have access to it with uh, the LLM technology. And for explanatory power, um, for people that may want to change the world, um, I think that that is an extremely useful tool. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. This is one thing where I actually am sort of hopeful. I now use a AI to write the... Um, not on my YouTube channel yet, but on my podcast to write the mm-hmm. description of my shows because it actually understands what I said that was important probably better than me unless I wrote it the day I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can do it faster than me because if I was going to do that, I'd have to re-listen to my show after I've already edited it. it like if you've ever edited a podcast, you 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 know. Now my my podcast is lightly edited these days, but you know that by the end of that, it like your own voice just sounds like garbled nothing to you by the end of that process, right? And um, I ran it through some of these uh, AIs, and I'm like, oh no, that's good at telling me what my key points were. Like it it it's good at that. Mm-hmm. However, if I ask it to write something that would be the kind of thing I would write. It gives me gobbledygook, frankly. Like, yeah, it's highly sterilized, you know, yeah. appealing, but yeah, it, it has that same feature. You, you, I used to play with this. This was a kind of AI technology way back that would like aggregate faces. Right. So they did this aggregation of like taking all the faces that we thought were attractive and putting them together and then coming up with an aggregate face of like the, the, the or attractive person. And they were boring. Mm-hmm. Like that image was boring. And I mean, the person was fine. There wasn't anything wrong with the, with the or attractive person, but they weren't actually like, they wouldn't stand out to you either. Right. And that's, that's the problem with these large language model, model writing samples. It's terrible at, at like particularly really complicated writing or very idiosyncratic writing. It's not good at it, but it's so amazing at like, Oh no, it can figure out how to explain something to a person that I would, you know, even I has a teacher who I do. I feel like I kind of have that skill, right. To explain stuff to normal people. Um, and it can do it way better than me. Like it, it kind of knows what the median person is going to get. Yeah. Um, and that's great. Also, man, does it make coding easier? As a person who's always hated coding in the past, like I'm just like, hey, write this code for me. Like, yeah. okay. 
and it's like accurate like 90% of the time it's actually pretty useful yeah you can um, go in and fix the obvious errors one thing that I found mm-hmm. to be really useful as far as coding and this goes back to the information hoarding the knowledge hoarding uh, problem um, so one of the biggest problems I found with learning how to code and this has been a pet project of mine for a minute since getting into cybernetics um, is learning about which packages, which libraries I can use, and how to use them. And what that basically is, is uh, it's pre-written code that people have made available that do specific tasks. So I can have a, a library that um, reads Word documents, for example, and can it does a bunch of operations on that Word document. Um, but getting how, getting, learning how to implement that in code can be, can be a challenge for me, not for GPT. Um, as far as knowing about the, the packages, knowing how to implement them, it just it, it 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 provides examples. It can if I give it the code that I want to integrate it into, it'll do it for me, and I'll just plug it right in. Uh, so where before, you know, I may be searching two or three hours. I may be you know asking on forums, you know, which packages, how to use it, why is my code not working? It just does, it. and you know, <laughs> that's. That's useful, you know. It's like it's knowledge I don't have, and would take a long time to to get. And yeah, it's also great for something like it just speeds shit up. Like I know some, I I have some friends who work in coding and used to do a lot of like coding for for social media advertising. You know, working for the devil. Um, but they, they would they told me how much faster. The how much less time they had to spend on coding, how much more time they could spend on design with the chat GPT. Mm-hmm. So that stuff I think is really amazing. Now, do I think we're going to run Cybersyn off of a chat GPT um, model? And it's just going to like, we'll, we'll have fully augmented, a fully automated luxury spa- uh, space communism. No, I don't think so. Um, and I'm really worried about how, like you said, I'm really worried about how this is going to be used. Um, we've already seen what automation was used in the Americas towards the industrial working class. That's why it's now 16% of the population or less. Um, we, we uh, I always find that interesting. There's this tendency right now to want to shrink the working class down to the blue collar working class. And on one hand, I get it because yes, college educated people are annoying. Um, on the other hand, I'm like, it, that's a disaster because eighty percent of us work in like eighty percent of us work in services in some capacity, and like pretending that everyone has a degree is actually some kind of management is literally nuts. Mm-hmm. That's not remotely demographically justifiable. And do you really? What could the working class do uh, with? with only 16% of the population in it. It'd be like saying we're going to use the peasants in, in the first world to, to be a political, a political subject and like, okay, all of agriculture's like 2% of the working economy. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh, and yet, I mean, I'll admit if, 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 no, if there was no food, everything would shut down, but it's really easy to find scabs in a field that small. Um, so yeah, I think, and I think that's going to happen now with this and we don't, 
it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of largesse in the state, even for the removal of debt. Um, much less for like something like UBI, which I'm not even necessarily for anyway. But I mean, like one of the things that I think people have to like ask themselves, why did, why was there so much focus on both college and prison in the United States? And that's like, well, you had a lot of people that you had to do something with before. Now, admittedly, we've seen prison reforms and, and college colleges capacity over the, like the pull people into it is declining. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want people to like, think about this as a system. Like why, why would that be happening now? Oh, maybe we need raw labor again. Like, um, but with it, depending on how these things like these LLMs are used, it could make this a lot harder to do. Like, like, like you're saying, this would be this. This could be a great empowered network with some de- with some other things you could do decentralizedly. You could build a whole lot with it. You could do a whole lot of stuff with it. There's already stuff that we've seen we could be doing. Like, uh, you start implementing this, you start implementing stuff like uh, create spaces and um, uh, 3D printing. We could be making tons of components right now. The with if we if we really worked on it with relatively we could cut down anyway, the kind of scale of industrial pollution that we're doing dramatically. If we did this smartly, right. We we have Uh the capacity under current technology to do all that. Yet. What do I see 3d printing mostly used for stupid gadgets? Like are making cheap D and D tokens are like, it's just not used for anything particularly useful and i've just come to the conclusion it's not the tech it's the telios of the tech under capital like it's being used for shit that's dumb because the stuff that would be useful would not be particularly profitable Mm -hmm. um if we used it that way and Uh, there's a there's a concept from wiener called teleological feedback and Mm -hmm. i use it a lot when i'm thinking about these sorts of things um you know, there's certain goals that are just impossible to reach with uh, with the telios of capitalism. The the feedback loops are too powerful to overcome. Uh, you know, without some radical restructuring of how we do our social reproduction. Uh, you mentioned that some people want to shrink the working class down to like 17%. And as a college-educated person, I push back against that because I feel like I'm working class too. Um, and I actually think that it's sort of the opposite. I think it's been generalized. And Marx's time, obviously, it was small. The industrial working class, the proletariat was still tiny. Um, but as Marx described it, as far as the relationship to ownership and production, I think most people uh, are proletarian at this point. But at it's, it's, you know, when you generalize something, it sort of stops mattering. And so we're, we're finding new ways to sort of to understand what the proletariat is. But as far as we're related to production, we're still uh, wage laborers. You know, we still have limited capacity to develop our individuality um, as mediated by uh, market relations. Um, uh, We don't have any ownership of the things that we use to reproduce our lives. And, you know, all that stuff still matters. 
uh, which is why I'm still a Marxist, you know. But uh, I think a lot of the people, a lot of Marxists are stuck in uh, the 19th and 20th century. And it's because of the language that, that we use to talk about Marxism. And I think Marx would be disappointed in us for that because uh, he wasn't trying to make an eternal system of how to think about society. He was trying to model societies, uh, but he was doing it with the languages that he had. And the language that he had came from, you know, the the romantic 19th century revolutions. Um, and now we have better language to describe those things. Um, and it may give us more insight on how to describe those things as long as you know we stick to his general uh, you know ethos or you know that that striving towards liberation. Um, and looking at how uh, labor is is uh, distributed in society, and those yeah. those are things that I think that cybernetics and systems theory are much better suited for than uh, people arguing about dialectics or you know the Soviet Union. Absolutely, like there's things we could learn from the Soviet Union. For example, if we took a, a cybernetic model and applied it to God's plan, and like because. I'll be honest, God's plan was not that I think we should replicate it or anything. For those of you who don't know, that's the, that's the Soviet planning system. Um, it actually surprises me that it took as long as it did to break down. <clears throat> yeah. like, like, I'm surprised it ever worked at all. And um, which tells me a lot about how close we really were on a lot of things. And Yeah, um, I think that, that planning has to be totally different now. Uh, Cybersun was on the right track. Um, but one thing that, that, that Beer points out is that planning, it can't be, you know, five-year plans. That's too much of a time delay between active processes that are happening, you know, constantly and uh, the planning process. And uh, one thing that I think that LLM technology um, and general neural network technology uh, can do really well, like I said, is uh, take on isomorphisms of complex systems. Um, and I think that if we applied them maybe in a more developed, sophisticated form to um, production change and distribution chains and um, how they're related to environmental impacts and stuff like that, it would be able to model uh, those systems well enough to simulate them coarsely um, at this point, but coarsely enough to where we could um, steer our economy more than plan it out in five-year chunks, but actively steer it, um, well, which is the, the goal of cybernetic planning, is that, that steering of uh, active systems, which is not what the, the Soviets had. I don't think that that's what their, their goal was necessarily. No, uh, I think that's that's kind of an understatement. One thing I would say about about like even a lot of what I consider like you know uh, more like anarcho-communist theories about this, like a uh, participatory economy, which right, like we do plans and uh, there you have a year plan and a feedback loop. And I'm like that's I'm I'm still like that's too brittle. Like like all it takes is one. I'd rather for a year planning to go to shit 
Um, we see that with capitalism, which is which mm-hmm. is more flexible. What do you like? So this idea that we're just going to have like one giant participatory meeting and then we're going to figure out how to do all this through uh, negotiations and then we are stuck with it for is just that doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for one, I'm just not that into that many like even though I'm pro feedback the idea of us having that many meetings forever is enough of a time cost <laughs> for me to be turned off by it um one thing i will say though one of the things with cyberson that i have pushed back on is like part of the chilean effectiveness was actually just as much the codones and instigating workers into that as it was cyberson um i mean cyberson was never fully used um but it's always interesting to me what we could have learned if we looked at like what, what it would mean to run that kind of information system with the Cordonas, the empowered workers who are also very much trained in a kind of cybernetic model of like roles, not, not positions. So like anyone can step into the role if they have the skills to do it. And we want to make sure as many people have the skills as possible. So we can have fairly flexible teams and they're planning for like a whole district in an area you know, uh, um, these are kinds of things that we do need to think about. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I've been interested in like localism and translocalism and stuff like that, because I'm like, well, what we don't want is what we should have learned from like sectional bargaining. On one hand, sectional bargaining is great because it gives workers a lot of power. On the other hand, it washes out workers' regional concerns. If we, we know this from Italy, there was sectional bargaining going all the way to the fascist union system and the syndicate system under the fascists that was actually maintained after the fascists were gotten rid of. And it was supported by, you know, the, 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 the Italian Communist Party. But it treated everything as a wash and that led to operismo and autonomia actually even emerging out of marxist leninism people think it's this far left thing and it kind of is but it actually emerged from people who we'd associate with stalinist today and because they were realizing there was problems with sectional bargaining and all the sectional rules being just drawn up for everybody that did that wasn't resilient enough on the kind of things that we're talking about like it couldn't take in um, what the specific needs were of, say, female fe- uh, workers in, say, um, Milan, not Milan, that's in Spain, um, and like some specific part of uh, of Italy, mm-hmm. um, and so and, and like shoemaking, for example, right. Um, and so that's when they started doing workers' inquiry and, and really pushing that kind of stuff. Workers inquiry is a lot easier to do with these kinds of technologies because we'd be like, okay, give us the inputs like, and this will automate so much of this. And because this is automating a lot of the skill capture areas um, and giving it to you very easily, which that means anyone with moderate intelligence can now learn it, um, particularly because it's not hidden in jargon or in carteled off, you know, other systems, then it really is, you know, quasi meritocratic and you're going to want as many people on your team to have the skills because if somebody's sick that day, if a couple people have the skills, it's fine. On someone's sick, you have cascade failure, right? Like, which as an individual worker in a capitalist system, you might want 
because you want to be indispensable. But as uh, somebody who just wants their society to work, you don't want that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and so I do think these kinds of planning apparatuses and and taking a kind of like, okay, we realize that LLMs under capitalism are probably going to be a nightmare. Let's think about what we could use them for if if they're not. Or even, dare I say it as a Marxist, let's think about what we can prefiguratively use them for now while they're still, you know, freely available. Um, be some be, before some fear monger makes this only providence of like large corporations who have who can keep everything away from us. Mm-hmm. Luckily, that's uh been subverted a bit. Uh, Meta released uh one of their their models called Llama and mm-hmm. they got leaked, and you can pretty easily go and download um. And run a uh, an LLM on your personal computer. It'll be slow, uh, but it's possible. So I mean, these technologies are going to be be around. They can try to regulate them, but the cat's sort of out of the bag. They the the bourgeoisie may get better ones, but we'll always have something. But like, I'm really a fan of this concept of looking at at all of the control systems that are in place in our society to manage everything going on, all of the, the new technologies um, and, and sort of detangling them from their, their bourgeois nature, their bourgeois roots and, and seeing what they, they may be useful for. Um, I think Marx was into that too, because, you know, he brought up things like the stock market, which, was crazy to me uh, in the beginning whenever I read, you know, Capital Volume 3, and he suggested that the stock market may be useful in planning. Um, but now, looking at it cybernetically, the stock market is an intelligence that I think is greater than LLM technology right now. Um, it's just, it's uh, it's not being used um, in, in its potential. Stafford Beer has this little quote: the 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 nature of a system is what it does, basically, and you know the nature of our system is constraining working class freedom to to produce profits, uh, you know, extracting surplus value, and so you know everything that comes from that is going to be uh, in line with that with that that primary goal, um, but it doesn't have to be, and. Um, yeah, there there is a way to look at these things cybernetically, and and sort of detangle that that web of mess of uh, you know private ownership and the exchange of of goods from from those very intelligent systems that are managing that flow right now. And I think that a lot of the technology that's being produced right now is doing that for us in a way. It's uh, it's it's working against the the what capital may find useful at this moment because it's um, it's given us the tools to to plan our economy in ways that were you know impossible you know before I think that that these are extremely powerful planning tools if we can look at them that way and if we um, if we explore those possibilities and if socialists get serious about understanding them um, 
I think uh, the, the 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 capitalists are are so focused on these LLM technologies right now is um, more than enough reason that that communists should be uh, exploring why they may be potential to uh, to our project. And a lot of it is is the control problem. It's it's, mm-hmm. an, it's uh, model building and control is what these technologies are great at. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think I, I think there's a tendency to have a moralistic view of capitalism. And look, I, I have a moral critique of capitalism too, but that's not oh, yeah. really what I'm, I'm concerned with here. Um, that these technologies uh, could be further developed and utilized in ways that would be empowering to, to huge swaths of people. Um, if we, if we didn't buy their hype and really thought about what they were, what they were being used for, I think like the stock market thing is, is, is an interesting one. Like how much capital is managed through that? Like another thing that, you know, we can always point out. Yeah. People plan all the time. We know that capital is planning. Uh, do we need to convert everything into it? Like there's this weird fetish that we have in, in, uh, in Marxism to try to like, well, we're going to convert everything into dollars. And I'm like, yeah, but there's plenty of knowledge and planning. We don't convert into dollars now. So, so value, yes, it's the primary, it's the primary thing we do, but we shouldn't be trying to replicate that. Um, so, and what I mean by this is like, we also don't need to convert everything into like labor tokens or whatever. Like, sure, that might be helpful for certain things, but it's not going to be like, I don't need to figure out like the unit of labor. Um, <laughs> for every single thing we do. And that would not necessarily be a useful way to plan everything either. Right. Um, but there are ways in which these systems that already exist actually do account for a lot of these things. And we just don't deal with them. We don't use them. Um, we don't want to use them because of their origins. And, and while I don't think technology is neutral, I want people to understand that I mean, like technology is teleologically motivated, but it's teleologically motivated by the people implementing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like an LLM ran by workers would not do what an LLM run by Google's going to do. Right. Um, an LLM ran, you know, uh, the stock market that we're you the, the, the technologies that we use behind the top market, the kind of aggregation that we see in the stock market uh, could be used for all kinds of other than what we use it for. Um, we should not be turning away from this because of, uh, you know, all kinds of, of different things. Um, turning away from this cause it's, cause it's capitalist turning away from this because it's, um, difficult. Um, uh, I also think, you know, there's been a lot of like critical theory and psychoanalytic critiques of like stuff like cybernetics that are like, they get, they freak out about the name. Now, I admit, I've read a lot of cybernetic sociology in the last couple of months. Some of that stuff is bad. And um, I, I also think we do have to deal with this turn in cybernetics that I think kind of happened in the 1980s when it really gets limited to computer computing technology and all the other stuff is dropped. Just almost mm-hmm. entirely. Yeah. Um there is a good uh, a new sort of you know movement and in, in psychology 
that that's uh, integrating a lot of the old cybernetic insights uh, along with uh, sort of the insights that were gained from you know AI development. It's mm -hmm. called predictive processing, um, and I think it's it's pretty interesting. It's it's fairly convincing. What it argues is, um, I'm waiting for the guy to to cite Stafford Beer because it kind of seems like he's just implementing the viable system model into psychology a bit more, but um so basically they're saying the brain is a prediction a prediction machine that's running sis, uh, simulations that have been um fine-tuned by our experiences uh you first have you know just the the basic human brain which is overloaded with uh connections and through our experiences it fine-tunes its model of the world its model of uh its own body proprioception and um basically what our senses do uh, is send error signals into our um, that simulation that's running and so like so if you if you're seeing something um, what you're seeing is is your brain hallucinating what the simulation believes it should be seeing and the error signals um, are what gives the updates to the system and what gives attention um that that allows you to to assign attention to things and i'm not totally convinced but you know it, it's very interesting and the concept of the model in the head um is very interesting to me as well i think that is that is extremely powerful and uh from my own experiences how i've you know sort of rearranged the model of the world i've held in my head um i've seen profound um impacts on how i see the world as a result of that and how i see people and how i can have compassion with them and you know i sort of want to believe that that this this predictive processing thing's true because you know I'm, i just i like it but i also think that it's really good and i think that there's some good evidence for it as well this is interesting um <clears throat> The advantage is you can computers, if you mention something, I can look it up. I know a little bit about predictive processing, but I didn't actually think the link at the cyber. Mm -hmm. um, the guy, he, he quotes um, Shannon a bit, um, um, but Shannon's quoted pretty much everywhere, not just in cybernetics. Um, but he also talks about sort of the cybernetic revolution in the 50s and its limitations and... Um, well, this actually would would actually combine like a servo mechanic and a cognitivist viewpoint, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. like that's what I was talking about. Like, so say like, okay, we got all these random structures in the brain that they're basically spandrels; they just evolved, and we're and we do know from neurology that uh, we're opening up neural pathways and closing them off all the time, particularly mm -hmm. in certain periods of our life, like childhood and early adulthood. Um. And if it's working in this kind of feedback, we're like, basically like, okay, we have all this random architecture we're dealing with, but we can turn it on and off and we're getting feedback and simulating, you know, processing this. And then like, so we have this simulation that we're running. We have this theory of the world, this theory of mind that we're running and we refine it by feedback. And that's literally also leading the stuff like neuroplasticity. And mm -hmm. yeah, that actually is helpful. That That's a much yeah. more robust theory of what's going on than like even the pure neurology ones because some of them are like well you know your brain lights up afterwards so either a there's no such thing as agency at all and we're utter determinants going back to the big bang or b um neurology is shit because we can't explain anything by it 
and this probably would actually, I don't know that it was a help, but my, my inclination just, just thinking about it right now, but go, no, this might actually explain some things. Like we might actually be seeing why processing is happening the way it's happening in ways that we will experience differently than what we do and why these systems might not be related. Um, why agency may still be somewhat real. I mean, I don't mean counter causal agency. That's absurd. Mm-hmm. But, um, but like people might actually be running enough models that choice actually is something that you're actually encoding and naturally, et cetera. So like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, you, you know about me, um, Mark, you know that I've been ranting about this for years, but I, one thing I will say that I was always frustrated with Mark's about is Mark's because he's kind of dealing with the Hegelian context because he's dealing with science in a very early form. I mean, he's reading in anthropology. He's reading in he's reading in soil. St- I mean, I've been fascinated recently finding out from mega two stuff, all the stuff we've discovered Marx was reading. Mm-hmm. Um, he had weird interest. Um, but, uh, that that I'd be like, well, Marxism seems to imply a theory of mind, but class consciousness is kind of a way to hand wave that away. Alienation is getting to something like, you know, we're alienated from ourselves, we're alienated from each other's workers, we're alienated from products of our labor. He focuses on the products of our labor because that's the part in capitalism super important. But uh-huh. he talks about other things. Like you talked about, for example, uh, or to go back to a point you made earlier, Mark, um, you said that uh, that right now we, we have this, um, you know, we we see massive amounts of social alienation right now and skills hoarding and, and stuff like that. And there's all these competition. And so while there's there's more proletarian now than there's ever been, we don't think to divide ourselves up that way for sectional, regional, all kinds of actually all kinds of reasons, but also because we experience like status class amongst us as proletarians. Interestingly, when you take this theory of, uh, of, of alienation that Marx is playing with in early Marx, there's an explanation for that. Like the competition of workers against workers is an alienation of workers between what would normally be a cooperative thing to something as a competitive because of the stresses of labor. Mm-hmm. And so status mongering within that would also become highly incentivized. And so we wouldn't experience class as proletarians versus capital. I mean, most of us do not actually meet the capitalists in our lives unless they're petty bourgeoisie. Uh Like, like, uh, like when I worked at Geico, it was very hard for me to meet the owners of Geico. I met managers, we met high up managers, but I didn't meet the owners. Like right. I met, I kind of, I, I met Warren Buffett once, but he's not the only owner. Like structuralized capital removes that from you to such an extent. It's not something you experience. And then all these skill capture games and everything. And I think this is why there's all this anger at the PMC or whatever, right? It's part of it's liberal educated people are annoying. We've already established that part of, part of it is there are these skill capture games we see in, in life that like there's some random arbitrary oligarch fucking up things in our lives that is, we can't really say they're a capitalist. They might, they probably are college educated, although they might not be um, depending on the kind of job we have. And we're in competition with them. Well, 
that's a status game that's incurred from the kind of alienation of work, right? And the universalization uh-huh. of the proletarian would make that more the case, particularly if the capitalists are so far removed from us that they don't even really care about the day-to-day operations of the bourgeoisie anymore. I mean, one of the things that I, I've kind of thought about a lot is capitalism is so abstractified now and capitalists are, have gotten so into like rents and rent commodities. Not that we've developed into neo-feudalism or anything stupid like that, but like rentier capitalism really has meant that a lot of capitalists aren't even that interested in like running their businesses anymore. They're outsourcing that. They're just kind of backing and hoping for ways to collect capital, even if the capital they're collecting is not valorizable and thus effectively fictitious. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been a pretty long-standing process. You know, Marx talked about how the capitalists handed over control of the factories to the, to the managers. You know, that wasn't a skill they had to have anymore. All they had to do was collect profits. And, you know, that was back in the 1860s. Right. They used to have to actually manage profits, though, and now, right? Like, over this time, they've developed such intricate meta systems to do all this stuff, and it's necessary because because the uh, the division of labor, you know, the these supply chains have grown so complex um, that we have to to figure out ways to to manage all these uh, all this variety, as the cyberneticists would say. Um, and the way you do that is through metasystemic control. So systems that are built over and above the systems that can that can constrain them or you know direct them. And um, you know, going back, I think that these metasystems that they've built are extremely useful um, if we learn uh, how to use them because they are they're, they they they're built to to control product flows, to control distribution of, of labor, to control, I mean, these are things that we're going to have to think about uh, in planning. And um, the these systems didn't exist in Mark's time. Um, and they allow that, that pulling back of the capitalists um, To, I think to that, the degree they are, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I would say that... So, there's a kind of Michael Hudson tendency to, like, posit industrial capital versus financial capital, and that's, like, a socialist country doing industrial capitalism, like, China is much more valorous than, you know. And my point to them is always, like, yeah, but why did... if if financial capital is always parasitic, which actually I don't think it was during industrial capitalism's ascendancy, and it definitely existed then. Um, Marx talks about it. Um, uh, um, then, then why did it turn into this parasitic form of, uh, uh, of financial capital? Just because people got greedy? That's not really viable. Like, like So we have to look at the system's so people get all like all industrially and like, oh, if we just had industrial capitalism, we had our workers movement back, et cetera. I'm like, but you might just restart this process, right? Like, well, but I think that they're ignoring the reason that that happened in the first place. And, right. And I think a lot of it is this profitability is falling. If if uh, if your interest rates are higher than profitability, 
you know, if, if you if a capitalist can expect to get more back from dividends on speculative investments than they can on industrial production, then it only makes business sense to invest it in that direction. Right. However, what this does create is a problem eventually where there's nobody in the system because we outsourced it to meta systems, et cetera, that can actually like people ask right now, I, I was reading this palladium article recently that blamed it on diversity. It was very kind of race realist actually. Um, but I was like, no, the reason why meritocracy is bro- broken down isn't because just diversity quotas. In fact, if you look at a lot of this, we have more nepotism than we've had in the past too. It's not just diversity quotas. Um, the reason why a lot of this meritocracy is broken down is though, is like, there's no one who can actually do it. Like, like we, we, the system is so complicated now and the meta systems are kind of been running on their own that no individual part of the system can actually rein any part of it in. They don't understand all the feedback loops. I don't know anyone who does. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this ironically leads to highly specialized, highly educated people, workforce, even bourgeoisie, who are subsequently, however, less competent because it's too much to do, right? Yeah. And and so when people are like, oh, well, you know, profit weights decline don't exist. I'm like, well, there's countervailing tendencies we're in one right now, actually. But we got rid of a lot of fictitious capital and stuff looks to be flowing again. Also, a lot of people died. Yeah. You know, like all kinds of stuff happened during COVID. Uh, in fact, I've pointed out that I think COVID actually ended up from a mixture of social democracy, getting rid of excess stocks, realigning world capital, et cetera, actually avoided a recession. Um, even though it hit one, it hit one in a way that like forced us to reorganize in a way that like probably starved off the recession for a little while. And it might be coming in the next couple of years. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing we can see, though, is even a country like China is experiencing unemployment in the, in the business cycle now. So we know that it still exists. Sorry, techno-feudalist people. If we're in a feudal economy, there's no business cycle. Sorry, it just wouldn't make any sense. There not enough business. Um but this is something that I think we're going to have to look at. And when people think we can just turn back the clock on our industrial policy, or we, you know, basically let's create industrial capital again so we can have the workers' movement that we had in the 20th century, that's not going to happen. It's not like the U.S. is unproductive now, right? Like, um, and it's not like I see what's going to restore those profit rates for a huge period of time. I don't see it. In fact, right now, I really, I don't know how yeah. I, I, you know, which is not to say that something, you know, capitalism always surprises me, man, but like, it's a dastardly motherfucker, but yeah. it's going to get out of these current like trends. Like, I don't know where the, vi- like, where the viable capital is. Uh, it seems like no one can do anything about any of the systems. There's too much prior investment. Even something as simple mm-hmm. as student loans seems impossible for this or, or something that we know. One of the things I tell people, like, why is it so hard for capitalists to institute um, socialized medicine or even socialized insurance in America when it was even good for capitalists in the states that they did it 
to in Europe and Canada and, and Asia, et cetera. And I'm like, well, because we have to destroy all the shit we've invested in the private system. Like, and you have to figure out what to do with that. Whereas if you instituted this earlier, you would have never had that problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So like the longer these systems go on, the harder they are to change, the harder reform becomes, et cetera. And you do kind of, you end up in a situation where we are going to have to break parts of it down, even for capitalism to survive. And why would we want to, if we're going to have to do that and keep capitalism up, why would we want to stop there? Exactly, yeah. Like, we're going to have to do it. Go ahead. uh, That that old vision of workers' movements and revolution, um, it's it's dead. I don't think that that's necessarily what it's going to look like. I, I mean, this, uh, we don't live in the world of, of a massive industrial proletariat, and we probably never will again. And in the limit of how the the trends are going right now, I mean, I see massive the industrial war proletariat and was, famine, and right. uh, it, industrial proletariat in specific was never more than 50% of the population anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like we, it never hit the point of being the the uh, the majority of the population, which right. which that is something that Marxists freaked out about in the early twentieth century because they were like, "Wait, this isn't this." We thought that we'd be every, and we're not. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, at the time, there are a lot of debates. Like, are are people in the service sector lumping, right, people, and stuff like that? And I do think there is like a lumpenization of lots of the working class, particularly the industrial oh, yeah. working class, because, because of de-skilling, because of uh, precarity, et cetera. Totally think that's real. But, but the idea that like, oh, well, we shouldn't deal with them because the service sector is lumping when like now, even in the developing world, it's an increasingly huge part of the economy because it's not automatable. Mm-hmm. Right, like, or it's hard to, it's very hard to automate. Um, that's a, that's a reality we have to deal with, right? Yeah. Like, and so I just don't think. I guess my point is not only can we not turn it back to what we think the nineteen forties and fifties were, we also have to be honest that the nineteen forties and fifties weren't what we thought they were in the first place, or we would never be in this scenario now. Right. And also, I think that it's sort of tangential to the actual problem. So the identification of the proletarian is important for Marxism, but I think that it's important for Marxism because it's just a technical fact that there's really nowhere else to go below it. Um, once you once you've reached proletarian, you are you are alienated from society unless you can sell your labor. Uh, to a money owner um, you do not have access to develop your individuality um, much less to eat or shelter yourself as a proletarian unless you convince someone to to buy your labor power as a commodity and that commodity is mediated um, through a market price that's ultimately mediated through its value um, which is its basic reproduction and so I mean that that severely limits us as workers um and it, so i think that the what the what the real point for marx is is that we're at the point to to where 
we have no other incentive but to take control of social reproduction. There, I mean, we don't have any incentive of ownership to create a new form of social reproduction that that sequesters surplus value or surplus labor um, as private property. It's in our interest to control it socially. And what Marx also saw is that capitalism is producing the means to control social reproduction in a social manner. Um, so I think that if you look at it that way, who's proletarian, who's not proletarian, it doesn't matter. What matters is who is working on the project of how do we control social reproduction in a way that is democratic um, and in a way that maintains economic and social viability in a way that that keeps working class people with a healthy model of their world and their society in their head so that they don't become what we call lumpen, which I think is just people with a model of the world that uh, reflects a highly competitive and vicious and violent existence. And so, of course, we're going to interact with the rest of the world in that way. But that's just a result of, of, the, of, of the fact that they can only mediate that model, that, that creation of individuality through what they can purchase. And they can't mm. purchase anything because they're broke. Um, so also, uh, what, what my point is, is, is Marx wants us to take control of, the, of, of social reproduction. Um, capitalism has given us the tools to understand it scientifically. And I think when Marx says scientifically, what he means is in a systems theory point of view. Look at inputs and outputs. Look at, look at the model. He was creating a model of capitalism. And how do we, how do we redesign what we re need to redesign? And how do we, you know, how do we recreate a world to where we can control what happens to us in the future? We can predict it. We can, we can make it happen. That, that's what his goal was. And, and the language of proletarian and class is what he had to describe that. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct there. I also think like, like the idea of like, okay, who's proletarian? We, we figure out their productiveness and yes, I do admit exploitation as part of proletarianness, but, I, and, but some of that, like some of that guys was like figuring out where the tax income came from. And that's what he's like. There's all kinds of stuff in Marx that I'm just like, like the argument about the proletarian wasn't wasn't just that they were exploited or oppressed. It was also mm -hmm. because they had skills. Like um, trying to limit yourself and actually exclude people who don't have certain skills is kind of crazy to me. However, I will also say there's an overvalorization of like on the left in general, like academic skills, particularly in the humanities, sociology, et cetera, like absolutely true, completely correct. If you want to call that annoying PMC tendencies, that's fine. Although I always point out that like, well, managers don't tend to be humanists. Like when, when most people are complaining about the PMC, they're complaining about HR. They're complaining about academics. They're not actually complaining about managers, which seems to be like the most crucial part of that whole fucking thing. So mm -hmm. um, we do have to ask ourselves about uh, about all that. And I also think a lot of people do damage to the analytical categories. Like, 
proletarian and capitalist is about your relationship to production and your ownership of means of production. There are other ways of talking about class that are perfectly comprehensible and they're real. Like we can talk about, you know, upper, lower, middle class. We can talk about precariat, non-precariat, et cetera. These are, these are real ways and that they just, I know it. They're real in the sense that they, I know what they're describing and I can understand them. Right. Um, but they're not the same thing. And, and we, I think there's, there's this Marxist tendency to go, well, the only, the only class analysis we have is, is this one, but if it doesn't work on things we want it to work for, we got to do all these kinds of things to make it. So let's talk about this other theory. Let's add this theory. Let's pull this out. Let's only focus on productive workers. Let's only focus on industrially productive workers, which is different than productive workers, by the way, et cetera. Like, and, uh, I just want to go like, like it makes the one clear category we have in Marxism. Marx talks about like what 15 or 16 different classes. I'll admit though, except for, except for bourgeois and proletariat, most of them are kind of not as clearly or analytically strictly defined. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like I have still, you know, we talk about lumpenization. I know what that is. It's very real. But if you ask me, like, and it's kind of a useful social category to talk about people who are for the world. But if you ask me to tell me what its class characteristics are, I'm like, I don't know, actually. Like, because there's there's stuff in like, well, well, the the lumpen exploit the workers through through you know question like but some of the stuff marks list in that group are not actually exploiting the workers it's just Mm -hmm. socially unpleasant shit like right um so i don't i don't really see what you you know there petite bourgeois is another one where it's like okay like i get it it's useful but also like it's not strictly defined in the same way um it's probably more clear than lumpen but uh, reserve army of labor. That's another one that I'm like, oh, like that, that could be anybody, honestly. Um, it says anyone who could be in the position of a worker. Um, so I, mean, I, I say this because I don't want to do damage to the, to the analytic from Marx that we have. That's clear. Like, mm-hmm. And I admit that like, no, Marx doesn't ever spell out. Like we've talked about this. You've read to volume three. I've read it too. Uh, it marks get you know when he gets to the strict definition of worker, he cuts off before he gives it to us, right? Like it's not right. finished in volume three, but we got we got enough of a description to kind of know what we're dealing with here, and it's people who are dependent on the general, um, on the general rage fund, and do not own their own means of production. And Marx does understand for people who, who don't get it, that people are in multiple. I mean, his example is a teacher. People are often in multiple class positions, depending on what they're doing at what time. Mm-hmm. Like what it, his example about the teacher is like a teacher when working for a private school is a productive laborer who's subsisting off this. And then when they're working um, on, uh, you know, for the public, they're actually living off the surplus. So you can't call them productive. Um, but they're not, you know, that what, but the implication is what they're doing is socially necessary in both cases. One is productive to capital, to capital accumulation. One is not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I noticed that whenever Marx uses that language of productive and unproductive, 
he's he's sort of talking about you know their relation to the to the generation of surplus value, right? Um, which makes me wonder what Marxists really care about that for. You know, it's it's not really our concern whether our labor is productive of surplus value or not. That's uh that's something that Marx was sort of discussing because. That's what the people he was reading was discussing. You know, he was right. he was sort of trying to synthesize their uh, their different viewpoints or models of of capitalism through you know Smith and Ricardo, the physiocrats, and take what they were talking about and figure out you know how to turn it into this in, into capital. And um, so I mean, I think a lot of that a lot of that is just a little bit of misdirection, and we're falling for it. And I just yeah, I, well, I find that we're falling for it. I also find that we're falling for it at a time when, even though, like, broadly speaking, culturally and maybe even more economically left-wing than in the past, uh, the far left and the social democrats have lost a lot of cultural credibility. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are going into this stuff. But more people are probably just becoming basically either liberals or conservatives uh, because they're fed up and they and we don't monitor that because they're not talking to us. They're just disappearing. Right. Um, but to me, all of this is a sign of like, well, this is a sign of, of political and social weakness. Um, and that's why we're attracted to this is like, in some ways we're, we're trying to justify our alienation by one blaming it on a class, a class PMC. And, Again, I know I have a lot of people who think I'm being soft on them. I, I do think I'm a big believer in like uh, just Smith's discipline minds. I think university does something to people that makes it harder for them to talk to people. You talked about this too. And sometimes we need mm-hmm. like it, it, it limits your social world as much as it expands it. Um, but to me, that's not a class problem. That's a socialization problem. Right. Like, and And those people still hold vital knowledge of, meta systems that have deemed to be socially necessary by capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, by virtue of them existing, being funded, they have some sort of social necessity to them uh, in, a, in a capitalist society. And the people who are in those PMC positions hold social knowledge that we've developed over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of human existence and I think that, that that group of people is going to be extremely important in some hypothetical moment to where we can start to consciously manage our social reproduction. Um, you know, not every decision can be made um, by the, you know, the, the general idea of what a working class person uh, is going to be. There's going to have to, to, to I mean, there's going to have to be people that engineer the new society just as much as there's going to be people that, you know, participate in the discussion of how to engineer it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, on that point, I guess we, we you know, we, we've kind of been talking broadly. We, we talked a little bit on LLMs and art, the limitations. And we've talked a lot about the intersection of cyber Marxism and we've gotten, we've ended on pure Marxology. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Um, I, maybe it's a good place to end. Uh, sure. Is there anything you want to share um, as you go? Uh, no, I don't believe so. I mean, I appreciate you having me on and letting me talk about you know the stuff that I'm interested in. 
Yeah, me too. It's always nice to have you on. Um, uh, I am uh, glad that you came on and hope to have you again sometime. So thank you so much for coming on. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember when I brought you on, just be like, uh, what's it? it must've been almost five years ago now when I brought you on and be like, yeah. Hey, read capital volume three, please. Before you start talking about political economy, don't just read like, the chapters you like don't start it don't stop at the intro class it's real stuff some stuff in those other stuff is really important like even if you don't agree with it even if you think parts of it are wrong it's really important so right yeah i think about that interview a lot and it, it was in the beginning of my my sort of self-education and i cringe to think about some of the things i said and which i'm sure I'll, I'll do the same thing with this one too but uh no, I mean, I, I really appreciated it the whole time. Um, I don't know if people know, but a long time ago, I found Doug Lane, and you were talking to him, and you sort of inspired me to start to start read Capital and all that. So I, I appreciate that. And um, thanks. Yeah. You've, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad. All right. Well, on Park that something. note, have a good evening. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you for supporting VarnBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening.